We'll continue where we left off last week. Uh, we left off, so we're in this book, The Heirs of the Prophets. Some people have asked about the, where they can get the book. I'm not sure that this book is actually physically sold anymore. Has anyone been able to find it physically for sale, the physical book? Okay, yeah, you found it? Amazon, okay, try. I think it's in limited, you know, uh, availability, but you may or may not be able to find a PDF easily accessible online. Yeah. There are PDFs that becomes very easily accessible online. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So you can find it, inshallah. It's always good to buy the book, um, but <coughs> when you can't find the book, it's a little bit different. So we began last time talking about this book and, and the author. I actually skipped a lot of stuff. Always after I leave, I realize, oh, you didn't say this, you didn't say this, you didn't say this. There's a lot of stuff that could have been said that I, that I skipped. Um, but one thing that I will note. So this, as I mentioned last time, The Heirs of the Prophets, this is a essay, commentary on one hadith by Ibn Rajab and Hanbin. Okay? It's published in a collection of his commentaries that are similar. So he's, he has a number of writings like this, where he'll take one hadith and he'll comment on it, or take a verse, he'll comment on it, and he'll write you know, 10, 15, 20, 50 pages, whatever else it might be. And uh, interesting thing about Ibn Rajab, he's always called Ibn Rajab and Hanbali. And I think that one of the points that's important to recognize, as we're, again, what we're, part of what we're trying to do, we understand the text, but we also want to understand how does the text fit into a greater intellectual tradition, right? So one of the things that we, we notice is that he's almost universally called Ibn Rajab and Hanbali. Is, is not so common that you hear Ibn Rajab. Ibn Rajab you hear, but like you always almost hear him al Hanbali. And what that is, is that's a affiliation with the Hanbali school, the school of Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal. And what's important to note about that is that up until very recently, you would be hard-pressed to find a Muslim scholar who didn't follow one of the madhabs in fiqh. Uh, you know, the four madhabs are the madhab of Abu Hanifa, Malik, Shafi'i, and Ahmed, uh, Ahmed ibn Hanbal. But you'd be very hard-pressed. And if you go to like in any Islamic library, go to any Islamic bookstore and find books that are written before 200 years ago, which is kind of like the, turn, the main turning point in Muslim history. It starts around 200 years ago, right? 1798, Napoleon invaded Egypt. They, they uh, went into Masjid al-Azhar. They, they made the classrooms in al-Azhar, the stables for their horses. They, you know, like all of this kind of stuff. 1798 is an important year. So it's roughly 200 years. Things start to change a lot. But if you go before 200 years, or you go to kind of like that pre-colonial period, Almost universally, you find that every... Um, I'm trying to think of exceptions. It's very d difficult to think of exceptions. The exceptions I'm thinking of are people who were like 200, maybe 300 years ago, and it's like one or two names. But hundreds and thousands of people throughout history, they always had a medhab. So this is important to note, solely because sometimes you have people who are very kind of like, you could say, anti-medhab in fiqh. The medhab in fiqh is an approach to understanding how do we interpret the Qur'an and the Sunnah of the Prophet to come to a conclusion on what we should or shouldn't do. It's essentially what it is. Okay? Very basic definition. 
We have the Qur'an, we have the Sunnah. We want to know how do we understand these textual sources to make decisions about what we should do in our life. And these madhabs give us an approach. The madhab is not uh, sacred in and of itself. Okay, so like the school of Abu Hanifa is not sacred in and of itself in the sense that if you don't follow Abu Hanifa, you're wrong or something. It's not, it's not the idea. But what the Ummah has agreed upon for a thousand years is that when you have one of these positions that like Abu Hanifa held or Shafi'i held or his school held, then it's okay for you to follow it. And when we're trying to find answers to new questions, we build upon that foundation. This is the general approach of Muslim scholarship. I'm not trying to be argumentative here in any sort of way. My approach, generally speaking, since we're all new to each other at some point, at some level, is that when it comes to teaching, my concern is knowledge. So, you know, it's not about party politics, it's not about groups, it's not about affiliations, it's not about any of that stuff. It's about understanding how did the Muslims engage with their intellectual tradition. And to me, it matters if for a thousand years, you find that every single person of knowledge was of a certain method. And if you read their biographies, you find it. Uh, so it's not like, uh, even, even the people who, sometimes you find people who are like, not so strict on the madhab stuff. Usually they talk a lot about Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Qayyim, rahimahumullah. Uh, they were both Hanbalis. And Ibn Rajab was a student of Ibn Qayyim. Ibn Qayyim was a student of Ibn Taymiyyah. So uh, all of these things are known. Like in the biographies and stuff, they're known. Uh, <coughs> it could be, perhaps, you have a modern issue where you're trying to figure out how do I deal with it. It's not there in the old books, right? Of course. That, that happened for, again, a thousand years. Like every, in every generation of people, there's issues that they're dealing with that they have to relook at. The, the Medheb doesn't tell you this is, this is a very common mistake in like, especially Western academia, the way that people talk about these issues. Even the way they talk about the Qur'an and the Sunnah. They're like, oh, if it's in the Qur'an, then it never changes. Not necessarily. Actually, many, there's some things in the Qur'an that are very specific. They don't ever change. There's other things in the Qur'an that are general rules. And the general rule might change because that rule could be applied to a different situation. But if you apply it to a different situation, you come to a different conclusion, right? So the, the madhabs, what they, what they offer us, are vetted approaches to how to understand the textual sources. So, in the madhab itself, by the way, like the Hanafi school is not always Abu Hanifa's opinion. It's very important to understand. The Shafi'i school is not always Shafi'i's opinion. 500 years later, you might have a Nawi, you might have someone else who says, you know what, we apply Shafi'i's methodology and we come to a different conclusion. And that becomes the madhab actually, because it's the approach. It's not the, it's not the particular conclusion that matters, it's the approach. Anyways, you see this from Ibn Rajab. Ibn Rajab actually has written an essay, one of his essays, is uh, it's translated also it's called the refutation of those who say that you don't have to follow the four methods he's actually written on the topic uh, you can read it if you want maybe we'll cover it one day but I don't want to get into too many arguments but these are just general points and I think that they'll become the more stuff we cover the more clear they'll come again what are we looking at we're looking at what is the general thrust of the intellectual tradition why because the Prophet ﷺ said that my nation will not come together on falsehood. So, if my nation will not come to come together on something that's false, then I want to understand what is the approach of the Ummah. Right? All of the Muslims went to all these different places. Actually, it's a, it's a tremendous miracle 
Our religion, the preservation of our religion is a tremendous miracle, if you really think about it. Okay, because you have to imagine the Prophet is in Arabia. There's no modern communication. There's no modern transportation. Right? Within 50, 50 to 100 years, Islam spreads into vast regions. Right? Now you're in Northwest Africa, you're in North Africa. Very shortly, you're in Spain. You're in Central Asia. You're in South Asia. You're in, you're in China. You're in uh, East Africa. You're in all of these different places. Islam spreads to them very quickly. Do you realize how incredible it is that there's an actual understanding of orthodoxy? <laughs> like, just think about it for a few seconds, that there's, there's an understanding of what do we believe as mainstream Sunni Muslims, at least. We're talking about Sunni Islam here. That's what I'm familiar with. And what is, what it, like, that there's an understanding of that. That someone who's, that someone, like, for example, when the, when the imams of the schools in theology, because fiqh is a little bit different than theology. Fiqh has a lot more, uh, it's a lot vaster in many ways, because you're dealing with economics, you're dealing with family law, you're dealing with divorce, you're dealing with international politics, you're dealing with all kinds of issues, and you're dealing with things where there's more room for interpretation. Whereas when it comes to belief, there's not as much room for interpretation, right? Like, this is what we say about Allah, this is what we say about the Prophet there's, there's not as much room to just say like, okay, no, I think this, or whatever. When the, the, the major imams of theology, Imam Ahmed is one of them, but he's not like, uh, I'm touching on a lot of things, so please bear with me, but these are important points. Imam Ahmed, his approach to beliefs is very much like, this is what the text says, and we don't do more than that. We don't do more than that. We're not going to talk about it. This is what the text said, that's it. It's a very simple approach. It's very nice, actually. And it's the way of the Sahaba and so on. There's no problem with that. But what happens is, is Islam spreads into many different places. And I mentioned this last time. You bump up against many different civilizations, right? So now you have like a long-standing Indic civilization. You have a long-standing Chinese civilization. You have a long-standing Roman Byzantine civilization. How do you deal with these people? You can't just take like the Bedouin Arab desert approach, right? It's a different situation. So they start to develop like approaches to beliefs. Why I'm saying all of this is because the main Imams, Ibn Hassan al-Ash'ari, Imam al-Maturidi, um, they exist in very different places. So like al-Ash'ari is in the, in the middle of the Islamic empire, so to speak, in like the Iraq area. And Maturidi is what they call Ma'wara al-Nahr, behind the river. It's like in Central Asia, behind the Oxus River. And these are distant places, right? And they're contemporaries. And at the same time, Imam al-Tahawi lives in Egypt. The creed of al-Tahawi, many people maybe have studied it, maybe we'll study it here one day. So you have all the way in Egypt, you have in like Arabia-ish area, central, you know, this Middle East region. And then you have Central Asia. Very distant places, right? They all lived in the same time. They all said almost exactly the same thing. Almost. There's like very slight differences on secondary issues. But they all said almost the same thing on matters of belief. What do we say about Allah? What do we say about the Prophet This is a miracle actually. I mean it's not a miracle in the sense that they're saying the same thing because they took it from the same sources, right? They took it from the students of the Sahaba. They took it from the Sahaba. They took it from the Prophet But the fact that there's this unity across these different geographic regions is a great sign from Allah uh, of His preservation of this religion. 
Anyways, the point of all of that was to say that, <coughs> that we have our religion preserved in the way that we do is, is a great blessing. It's a great, great blessing. And so uh, we shouldn't think that like some people got it right for maybe 50 years and then everybody got it wrong for 1200 years and then all of a sudden we got it right again. <laughs> it's a very strange kind of approach. And actually when what I've seen over and over again is that people who take this approach, many times they, often, they end up leaving Islam. Because if you think about it, you're like, wait a second, everyone got it, everyone in all of these places got it wrong for all of that time, and all of a sudden we just got it right? Like, there's something wrong with this thing. It's, that's not, that doesn't make sense, right? So you see, actually, a lot of people, they, because their intellectual approach is not connected. But actually, yeah, some people got it wrong, it's true. But there's always people who got it right. And the, the way of the Prophet ﷺ when he taught us is that in every single generation there will be people who get it right. They get the religion right and they pass it on to the people who come after them. So we look for a continuity in the intellectual tradition. And when you really study it, you see it. Every generation in every single city, as I mentioned last time, it's known. These are the people in every, in every city and every generation. And you can track it historically. So we'll leave all of that and we'll go inshallah to the text. <coughs> Bismillah. قال المصنف رحمه الله تعالى ونفر الله وياه بعلومه في الدارين أمين the following I had mentioned in one of the Facebook posts <coughs> that if there are people who are interested in the idea of senad or ijaza in a particular text um, then you could talk to me about it and one person reached out to me about it and they, they said that they would like um, a chain of narration what does this mean? And just very briefly is that again on this point of connectivity uh, like I have written down on a piece of paper how I'm, how I'm connected to Ibn Rajab so this person I heard from this person who heard from this person who heard from this person who heard from this person all the way back to Ibn Rajab and the idea was that when you study text and things that you can establish that and you could say okay can you give me this chain of this chain of connection to the author if, if it's the Qur'an, if it's a text of hadith, if it's a text of any other, anything else in Islamic studies. Honestly, for the most part, this is a matter of barakah more than anything else. It's more of like an issue of blessing. You know, there's like a blessing in it. You're being connected to these beautiful people. It's not really like, like if we study this text and you say, I want ijazah in it. And I give you the chain of narration to the text. Don't think you're a scholar. Like that's, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. You know, it's going to take like a lot more texts. Um, but it's a nice thing to have. The reason I'm saying that is because it doesn't work for the English text. <laughs> so if you're one of those people who want that, inshallah, we'll have to figure out a way to do it. I think if we sit for like 15 minutes at the after we officially close, if we sit for like 15 minutes, and I can read, I'll read the Arabic to you. And you can listen, and then inshallah, if you want that, you know. But I don't know who wanted that or didn't. And if nobody does, alhamdulillah, nobody does, it's okay. It's not going to hurt my feelings. Uh, Abu Darda, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, the companion of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, said. Actually, we already read that. <coughs> A man traveled from Kufa to Syria to ask Abu Darda about the validity of an oath he had taken. Okay, so the idea is someone took an oath, you know, by Allah I'm going to do this or this or whatever, right? He traveled from Kufa to Syria to figure out, what do I do about this situation? 
Just think about that for a second, right? Kufa's in Iraq. Syria, obviously, is Syria. Travel in those days is not easy. So it's a, it's a significant trip. You know, you have to get on a camel, walk through the desert, possibly get attacked and killed. Like, it's, it's a big deal. So he goes from Kufa to Syria to ask Abu Darda about the validity of an oath he had taken. And Sa'id ibn Jubair, Sa'id ibn Jubair was from the scholars of the Tabi'in, the generation after the Sahaba. The, the followers of the companions of the Prophet The followers Tabi'een are the followers The capital F And the companions are the Sahaba uh, You know, with the capital C It's a group of people, generation Sayyid ibn Jubair was actually killed by Al-Hajjaj ibn Yusuf It's a famous story You know, he was a ruler And Sayyid ibn Jubair, uh, he killed him And there's a nice little play It was translated into English I don't know if it's still published or not called The Scholar and the Tyrant. Uh, Sheikh Yusuf al-Qaradawi had written it, Hafidhullah. Um, he had written it and it was translated to English a long time ago. It's a very nice little play. It kind of like takes the story of Sa'id ibn Jubair and tells it in the, in the form of a, you know, uh, like a theatrical type thing. He traveled from Kufa to Mecca to ask Ibn Abbas about the explanation of a single verse of the Qur'an. So note what I said, Sa'id ibn Jubair is a scholar from the Tabi'in. Actually, when you read the books of Tafsir, you see his name a lot. And this is, it makes sense in the context of this, because Ibn Abbas is one of the main names you see in Tafsir also, in commentary on the Qur'an. And one of his students, Sa'id was one of his students. He benefited from him a lot. So when you read the commentary of the Qur'an, you'll see like this word, Ibn Abbas said that this word means X, Y, Z. Sa'id said that this word means X, Y, Z, whatever else. So he traveled from Kufa to Mecca to ask Ibn Abbas about the explanation of a single verse. Hassan al-Basri, also from the scholars of the followers, traveled to Kufa to ask uh, Ka'b ibn Ujra about the atonement of, for, al, uh, uh, for al-Adha during the pilgrimage. So he, he, there was an issue that he had about his pilgrimage. He went to him to ask him about this. A thorough exposition of this issue traveling to seek knowledge would be exceedingly lengthy. To further illustrate this practice, a man took an oath, the validity of which the jurists were unsure. When he was directed to a man in a distant land, it was said to him, that land is near for anyone concerned about his religion. That land is near. It's a far place. But what he's told is that land is near for someone who cares about their religion. You know, meaning you care about the religion, you go to find actual knowledge about it. This saying offers profound advice for one who concerns himself with his religion as much as he concerns himself with his worldly affairs. People travel a lot to take care of their worldly affairs, right? They travel here, they travel there, they maybe work long distances, they switch their towns, they go to different places, they move for the sake of their job. And, you know, sometimes people move for the sake of their religion. They say, this community is not working for me. I want to go somewhere else that's going to be good for me, that's going to be good for my family. I, I want to be close to XYZ person, whatever else it might be, you know? Uh, one of my classmates, who's senior to me, and this is an important thing to understand, is that just because people went to the same institution doesn't make them all equal, okay? Just because they graduated with the same degree doesn't make them all equal. So one of our colleagues who was senior to us, Sheikh Arsad al-Haq, Hafidhullah, and Allah protect him and his family, he's in Dallas. Um, he's senior for a number of reasons, but also one of them is because he studied in Syria before he came to Egypt. And he could start, he was in Syria for several years. He was already finished one year in the college. And he could feel that things in Syria were starting to get kind of problematic. And so he came to Egypt 
and he had to start all over. So like the way that Azhar works is that you have to graduate their high school to go to their college. Unless they changed it, this is the way it was when we went. You have to graduate the high school to go to the college. In order to go to the high school, you have to test into the high school. Because their, their understanding is, if you're an Azhari, you started your Islamic studies from elementary school. And not like some, you know, like, uh, how should I say? Like hit or miss Islamic studies. Like a little piece here, a little piece there type thing. You study like the text in our history, they have order. So they started beginning text, middle text, advanced text from elementary school. So just because you graduated college in America doesn't mean you get to skip all of that, right? So their idea is you have to go to the high school to go to the college. So Sheikh Arsalan was already finished a year of college in Syria. And actually like the sister school of Al-Azhar. But he had to go back to high school. So we graduated at the same time, but he's obviously more senior, right? Um, and I was mentioning this story for a reason. Traveling to seek knowledge. Going somewhere. Ah, so uh, when, we, when it was time to come back, you know, we were fed all kinds of lies when we were studying. Like, oh, we need American Muslim scholars, and we don't have American Muslim scholars. And the like, consequence of that in your head is you're going to go for five years, you're going to become a scholar. Just complete nonsense. Right? You're going to go for six, seven years, you become a scholar. It's complete nonsense. But we were told these things, whatever. And, uh, but Sheikh Arsalan, he got it right. So many people are like, we're going to go back, we're going to serve in our communities. And take positions, you know, become imams, whatever. And he was like, no, I don't, that's too much responsibility. This is someone who's old, by the way. Like some people, they go out of high school. He went out of, uh, he did undergrad here, worked here, then went and studied. Halfway through his studies, had to start his studies over again. Then after finishing his studies in Azhar, stayed for two more years. Then he came back. So he's not young. Like he's probably in his mid-30s by the time he comes back, right? And he said, no, I don't want to go lead a community because that's a huge responsibility. I can't just do that. So I, I, I have a, he, had a deep, he has a deep love for Sheikh Mukhtar Maghrawi, Hafizullah. So he's like, I'm going to go wherever Sheikh Mukhtar is. So he found a job in Sheikh Mukhtar's community and he just went there. Then Sheikh Mukhtar in upstate New York. Sheikh Mukhtar got a job in Dallas. He moved to Dallas. Sheikh Arsalan was like, I'm going to move to Dallas. <laughs> he resigned from his position in New York, went to Dallas. Sheikh Mukhtar left and went to Turkey. He had to stay. You know? So he's still in Dallas. Um, my point in all of this is this idea of like, you travel so that you can benefit from someone. Like he could have said, I want to get a good job and like work in a big masjid and call people to Islam and have a bunch of followers on Facebook and Instagram and stuff. There wasn't, that wasn't there then. But, and then Instagram wasn't. But, uh, you know, he didn't do that. He was like, I want to be next to someone who's going to help me grow. And that's why I think, subhanAllah, like, uh, Sheikh Arsalan and his wife, some of you may be, Instagram people know his wife, Ustadha Shazia. Um, she, they're very hidden people. May Allah bless them. You know, like every time everyone's like, I came to Dallas, I was in Dallas, so I'm like, did you meet Sheikh Arsalan? I've yet to meet one person who I talked to them, and they're like, yeah, I know Sheikh Arsalan. Maybe like one or two people, out of dozens and dozens of people. Because of course there's a lot of teachers in Dallas, you know, there's a lot of people in Dallas. But he's, he sits there, nobody even knows who he is. He's a very, very serious uh, student, a very serious teacher. If you're in that area, you should benefit. So it's near for someone who cares about their religion. If something happens involving his religion and he finds no one to ask about except a person in a far off land, he would not hesitate to travel to him in order to save his religion. Similarly, if an opportunity were presented to him for some worldly gain in a distant land, he would hasten to it. So same point. 
In the hadith under discussion, Abu Darda gave glad tidings to the person who traveled to him seeking a hadith he heard from the Prophet ﷺ regarding the virtue of knowledge. This is consistent with the Qur'an. When those believing in our signs come to you, say, Peace be upon you. Your Lord has made mercy incumbent upon himself. Uh, verse 654. Similarly, once a group of students crowded around Hassan al-Basri, again, Hassan al-Basri is from the great scholars of the followers. Part of why I keep doing that is because these are names we need to know. So, you know, kind of like, these are really big names in Islamic history. Hassan al-Basri is a huge name in Islamic history. And not only for his scholarship, but for his example. He was really known as one of the, again, you know, part of what I was saying in the beginning about there's the class and there's the dealing with one another. There's learning and then there's doing something about it. And part of the Prophet Wasallam's message is that it's not just about the knowledge, it's about how do I become someone who carries this message? How do I become someone who has this Iman in their heart? And Hassan al-Basri was one of those people. Uh, they crowded around him and his son then spoke harshly to them. Okay, so this is something you see, like someone who's very senior and well-known, people crowd around them. Like you go somewhere with Imam Zaid, Imam Zaid Shakir, the translator of this text, and you look at him and you're like, subhanAllah. No, like this is not a young person. He's, he's getting older. And uh, I think he's born in 58, if I'm not mistaken. So he's getting older. Uh, and <clears throat> usually he's come from travel, right? Uh, and you go somewhere and everyone crowds around. This person has a question, this person has a question, they want to talk to him, they want to talk to him, so on and so forth. We've been at events before where the event finishes, and like an hour and a half later, Imam Zaid is still sitting there talking to people. And his people who are like trying, the people who are hosting him, they're in a tough spot. Like, we don't want to overdo it, we should we like get him out of here. But at the same time, you know that he understands that that's what he's supposed to do, even if it's really hard on you, right? This is something that's like, Sometimes you're in that position, it's not always about what's comfortable to you, right? So Imam Zaid, uh, he, he does that. Hafidhullah. So Hassan al-Basri, the people came around him and his son spoke harshly to them. And he said to them, he said to his son, go easy, my son. And then he related the aforementioned verse. The verse that says, when those who believe in our signs come to you, say, salamun alaykum. Uh, and that our Lord has made mercy incumbent upon himself. So he told him, go easy. Both the Tirmidhi and Ibn Majah quote Abu Sa'id as saying, Indeed, the Prophet advised the scholars with good treatment of the students of knowledge. It's very important. The teacher has a responsibility to be good to the student. This is why we feed you when you come. This is based off the concept. Uh, in, in Egypt, you have places like this. They're called Madiafat al-Sheikh so-and-so. The most famous one is Madiafat al-Sheikh Ismail Sadiq al-Adwi. It's right across from Al-Azhar. The Sheikh has passed away, Allah Yerhamu. But there's classes that are held there every single day for anyone to come. And anytime you come to the class, there's a guy who works there. He serves everyone food. And of course, it's not America, so the food is very simple. It's like a cup of tea and like a biscuit, you know. But everyone gets fed. And some of the students, you can tell that's the only food they get, actually. You know, it's not every student is coming from like wealthy backgrounds and stuff. I've seen students who come, they bring them the tea and they drink it really fast, the first one. And the biscuit, they eat it really fast. And then, because the guy takes him some time, he comes with a tray, fits like a hundred cups on it, right? And he brings this tray. And they'll eat it really fast, and then they'll say, can I get another one? You know, because that's, that's all they're getting. But the idea is it's called Madhyafa, because it's the place 
where the teacher shows hospitality to the student. It's from diyafa in Arabic, like uh, hospitality. They're your daif, they're your guest. So uh, they say the following. They advise the, the Prophet ﷺ, advise scholars with good treatment to students of knowledge. The Tirmidhi and Ibn Majah are from the six books of Hadith. There's six major books of Hadith. So also, it's good to just kind of review it very quickly. There's six major books of Hadith uh, that are the major compilations of Hadith in Sunni Islam. Bukhari, Muslim, Tirmidhi, and Nasa'i, Ibn Majah, and Abu Dawood. So he's mentioning a Tirmidhi and Ibn Majah. Uh, Bukhari and Muslim are almost exclusively authentic. There's some debate on a small handful of hadith among some scholars on some hadith in Bukhari and Muslim. You know, maybe like a dozen or two in Bukhari out of 4,000. And a little bit more than that in Muslim out of, again, 4,000. Uh, the other books are not as reliable as Bukhari and Muslim, but they have different methodologies. And it's important to know them. So a Tirmidhi will usually tell you his, his opinion on the grading of the hadith. It's not always translated. But in the Arabic, he'll tell you. And Abu Dawood has his own methodology for how he narrates hadith in his text. Uh, oftentimes, for example, at Tirmidhi and Abu Dawood, they might mention hadith that are considered weak from a strict hadith studies perspective. But they mention them because it's something that people do. So anyways, we don't need to get into this too much actually right now. But there's a reason. My point is there's a reason why they're mentioning it. Uh, the approach to maybe this is a point that's worth taking away there's an approach to hadith where people will say we only use hadith that are authentic you know, sahih, only authentic hadith if the hadith is weak, throw it out right? this approach actually is a very minority approach in Muslim scholarship I'll just leave it at that for now it's a very, very minority approach in Muslim scholarship it's not the approach of Abu Hanifa it's not the approach of Imam Ahmed even uh, it's definitely not the approach of Malik it's probably not the approach of Shafi'i, but I'm not so sure on that one. But the point is, it's, it's a minority approach. Can you follow it? Of course you can follow it. But it, just know that it's not representative of the larger swath of approach to hadith and Islamic studies. I hope I'm not going too far on some of these things. Inshallah, they'll get unpacked over time. Zir ibn Hubaysh, uh, came to Safwan ibn Asal seeking knowledge. Zir said to him, News has reached me that the angels lower their wings to the students of sacred knowledge. Abu Safwan also relates this directly from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So it's just emphasizing this point. One day people were crowded at the door of Abdullah ibn Mubarak. He was also a very um, prominent figure. He's from the students of Abu Hanifa, but he's freestanding in his own right as well. Who said, The students of sacred knowledge deserve the friendship of Allah and eternal bliss. He envied their gathering for this purpose because it leads to eternal bliss. For this reason, Mu'adh ibn Jabal radiallahu Mu'adh is one of the senior scholars of the companions. Okay? I mentioned last time, not all of the companions were scholars actually. All of them were righteous, but not all of them were scholars. Mu'adh ibn Jabal is from the senior companions of the scholars. He's the one the Prophet actually sent him to Yemen to teach the people. Again, you know, part of one of the inversions we have for Islam in America is this point. I don't blame anyone. This is something that um, people did the best with whatever they could. But the way of the Prophet ﷺ is actually that whenever Islam would spread in a particular place, he would send someone he can trust ﷺ, to teach the people in that place. And so they would produce, what happens from that? Mu'adh ibn Jabal, he's not from Yemen. 
The Prophet sends him to Yemen. He's not from Yemen. But where are his students going to be from? They're going to be from Yemen. So within the course of one generation, you're going to have indigenous scholarship, so to speak, like native local scholarship. Understand the people, they understand the culture of the people, the behaviors of the people, the mannerisms of people, the language of the people, the different tribes in the place, the different, they understand everything about the place, right? This is part of how Islam spread to different areas. What I'm saying about inversion in America is for the vast majority of cases in America, most of our communities spread without any learning. A bunch of people went somewhere, they wanted to establish prayer, they started a masjid, that masjid never hired an imam, or they hired an imam that was unqualified because that's all they could find, and the situation just stayed that way for 40 years. You know? That's not really how things should happen. Inshallah, we can uh, you know, uh, work together as a community to change that over time, but that's, that's actually a very dangerous thing. Because then you have a bunch of people who care about their religion and they want to do their religion, but they're not doing it right. So it ends up in a whole lot of problems. And again, if that's all you have, you work with what you have. Like it's, I'm not blaming anyone. Like if you're in the desert and you're starving and the only thing you can eat is a pig, you eat the pig. Is it ideal to eat the pig? Of course it's not ideal to eat the pig, but you have the pig, right? That's what you have. So you survive. Our communities, for the most part, they survived. Alhamdulillah, they survived, they grew, they thrived, they built masajid, they built schools, all of this kind of stuff. But we should be attentive to this point. So the Prophet ﷺ sent Mu'adh ibn Jabal to Yemen. He told him, Mu'adh, you're gonna, when you go there, you're going to find situations that you didn't find here in Medina. What are you going to do? He said, I'll rule by the Qur'an. He said, what if you don't find it in the Qur'an? He said, then I'll rule by your sunnah. He's talking to the Prophet wasallam, right? He said, I'll rule by your sunnah. He said, what if you don't find it in my sunnah? He said, then, اجتهدوا ولا آلم That I'll exert my effort to the fullest to understand the issue correctly and I won't look back. Okay? And the Prophet ﷺ told him, Alhamdulillah, wafaqa rasula rasulillah ila ma yurdi rasulullah Alhamdulillah, that Allah gave tawfiq, gave guidance and, and uh, blessing to the messenger of the messenger of Allah so that he does that which is pleasing to the messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam You have to pay attention to the wording on that one a little bit But basically the Prophet ﷺ is saying that's the approach you should take And this is the hadith that actually serves as a foundation for understanding the methodology of how we come to positions But Mu'adh is one of these people He cried as his death drew near And said, I weep at how I will feel missing thirst for midday heat Standing in prayer during long winter nights and the crowds of students kneeling around the scholars in the circles of knowledge. It's a very famous statement. Wa'ad said what? Wa'ad is dying. He starts to cry. So why are you crying? He says, there's three things I'm going to miss from this life. The first one is the way that the heat feels in the middle of a long day when I'm fasting. And think about like <laughs> the sincerity of the person, right? Like, I'm worshipping Allah, and because I'm worshipping Allah, I know that whatever difficulty I'm going through in this, I'm getting reward for it. So the heat in the middle of the day on a long day when I'm fasting, that's the first thing I'm going to miss. The second thing that I'm going to miss, <coughs> he says, is standing in the night and praying in winter nights. Why winter nights? Because they're long, right? So the summer days, they say like the really serious people, they love the summer days for fasting. And they love the winter nights for praying. 
because the summer day is really long for fasting and the winter night is really long for prayer. I mean, these are people, they didn't, like, Islam wasn't preserved and spread on their hands for no reason. They were, they were serious people, you know. He says, and the third thing I'm going to miss is the students of knowledge uh, gathered around the teachers to the point that, uh, you know, they say like, tazahum uh, al that the knees are touching each other. And this is what you would see, like in America, we don't really see it that much. But and of course, COVID kind of uh, switched things up a little bit. But, you know, in some places they don't have COVID. I was just talking to one of the brothers, like, mashallah, they don't have COVID in Egypt. Fellas, they haven't, they, there's no COVID in Egypt. Nobody has it for the last three years. <laughs> you know, you see all the pictures, like the sheikh is sitting. There's like a hundred students, all of them are like all on top of each other. The knees, literally the narration, right? Like the knees are touching each other. Everyone's all in. And like even one of the Sheikh Rayyan, he passed away from COVID. He died of COVID. The gathering, remembering his life, they're all together. Subhanallah, <laughs> this is different. It's different. But anyways, he's saying he's going to miss <clears throat> students kneeling around the scholars in the circles of knowledge. It is appropriate that scholars welcome students and urge them to act on what they learn. They welcome them and they urge them to act on what they learn. This is the basis of the religion. You learn something, you do it. It's an absolute foundational issue. You learn something from a sound source and you do it. Uh, people always say like, oh, the Prophet said, بَلِّغُ anni wa ayah." You know, convey for, me, convey for me even if it's one verse. Okay, but there's a condition from this. The Prophet if you took one verse from the Prophet you're going to understand it correctly, right? This is the condition. If you're going to convey from the Prophet even if it's something very small, you understand it properly. Understand it properly, understand it correctly, don't be in a rush, make sure you got it, then go ahead, share it with other people, right? So, uh, <coughs> he says that this is what they would do. So you, you, you get the knowledge and you act upon it. Hassan al-Basri greeted his students, again, Hassan. So what he said to them, <clears throat> again, like, it's one thing we just, sometimes we take a step back. This is what Hassan said to his students. Hassan is the generation who were the students of the companions of the Prophet So he lived 1400 years ago, probably. He's the one, he grew up in the house of the Prophet like in the, he said he could reach up when he was a kid, he could reach up and touch the roof of the house of the Prophet That's how simple his home was, But that's how early he is too. And we know what he said to his students. Isn't that really amazing? Like, we, of course, we know hadith, we know Qur'an. So we know also to the extent, all these people, what they said to their students, how they advised people, what did they write, how was it preserved. It's really remarkable. Like, think about how much effort has gone into this intellectual tradition that's what I'm trying like one of the things we have to really feel is and, and like the reductionist approach to understanding Islamic studies where like everything is made easy super easy as if there's no issue to it as if it's easy for everyone to understand so on and so forth it just takes a few days you get it like that's fine for what you want to practice but it's very disrespectful actually to this right like we didn't get this in our hands for nothing these people put serious effort into it so Hassan al-Basri said to his students, Welcome. May Allah extend your life in peace. And may He enter us all into paradise. Your seeking knowledge is a good act. If you persevere, are truthful, and are absolutely certain of the reward Allah has prepared for you. May Allah have mercy on you. Do not let your share of this good be such that it enters one ear and passes out the other. 
One who hasn't seen Muhammad وسلم, should know that the Prophet has seen him moving to and fro. The Prophet وسلم, did not erect tall buildings. Rather, knowledge was given to him and he dedicated himself to it. Do not procrastinate. Salvation is at stake. What will make you heed? Are you hesitant? I swear by the Lord of the Kaaba, it, as, it is as if judgment day is imminent. This is Hassan he's saying to his students. A very important part of what he said. The Prophet did not erect tall buildings. Rather, knowledge was given to him and he dedicated himself to it. This is actually the religion. One of the things I always tell people on the same inversion point, if you think about it, what came first? The Prophet or the Masjid? Prophet, right? When did the Prophet build the masjid? Not until Medina, right? There is 13 years of Islam, teaching Islam, preserving Islam, guiding people, helping them in their relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala before there was ever a masjid. This is a little bit controversial, but I don't really think it actually is. If you really think about it, it's going to feel controversial. The masjid is not going to guide us. We need to understand this. The masjid is not going to guide you. Like the building of the masjid does not guide you. The building of the masjid is, alhamdulillah, a beautiful place to pray. It's the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It has rules, it has blessings, it has... Masajid are blessed, blessed places. Don't get me wrong, right? But the masjid is not going to guide you. Right? There's, there's, a, there's a communal obligation. We talked about, I think last time, individual obligations and communal obligations. I don't remember. Uh, but there's a communal obligation to have a place to pray. We have to do that. There's a communal obligation to learn the religion. Like have people who can actually teach you the religion. There's a communal obligation, by the way, do you know there's a communal obligation on every single community of Muslims that they have a qadi, they have a judge, like if they, and if they don't work towards doing that, they're all sinful until it is accomplished. That they have someone who can actually sit and tell them, okay, you brought this issue, this is the fatwa on it, this is how you deal with the situation, this is how you rule in the situation. Right? You could establish Jummah, you could establish prayer in any number of ways. Right? Like we just had a first Jummah for mass uh, ICC center, they had it in like a noble athletic center in La Jolla, right? You could establish Jummah in any number of ways. If you don't have someone to tell you, you know, actually this is haram. This is halal. This is, this is okay. This is acceptable. This is not acceptable. This needs to be dealt with differently. This is how we should be teaching people. And if you don't have that, by the way, like there's certain things, you know, that whole trickle-down effect issue. I don't want to get into politics and economics and stuff. But in certain things, there's a truth to it, right? Like if you don't have an expert, you can't have people that are below the expert. You can't have people that are below that. You can't like, in order to have a medical industry, you're going to need doctors. Right? Is, it, is it okay if like we have one doctor and we're like, no, we just need you to be a nurse for the rest of your life? Does that make any sense? Yeah, but people are sick and we just, we just need nurses right now. Like the guy can't wash himself. He, he needs a nurse. Okay, but like if we make the doctor a nurse forever, are you going to have a doctor after they die? Are you going to have anyone else that can ever be a nurse? Are you going to have anything? Like can you actually build out community life if you don't have people of knowledge who are actually teaching people so that other people can be you know youth group leaders and they can run programs and they can do things properly and so on and so forth this is a piece on the top if you miss the piece on the top everything else gets lost all right chapter two paths leading to sacred knowledge 
Let us now begin explaining the hadith of Abu Darda. He didn't begin the hadith yet. Whoever travels a path seeking sacred knowledge, Allah will place him on a path leading to paradise. In another version of the hadith, we read, Allah will make easy for him or her a path leading to paradise. Another version found in Muslim related on the authority of Abu Huraira reads, Whoever travels a path seeking sacred knowledge, Allah will make easy for them a path leading to paradise. There's no like free, um, how do I say? It's just not entirely true. <laughs> I was going to say there's no get out of jail free card. There kind of is, like, if you really love the Prophet them, it's like a borderline get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, but, like, in the end, we have to live our religion. One thing about this religion is, it's strong. The Prophet them said this too, that this deen is metin, it's firm, it's strong. So he said, so dive into it with rifq, dive into it with gentleness. Like, you take it easy. Take it step by step. Nothing changes overnight. Take it step by step. If we're honest with ourselves, we might look at ourselves and be like, man, I've been trying to deal with this situation for 15 years. Like 15 years I've known that I shouldn't do this particular thing or I shouldn't be thinking about this thing in that way or shouldn't be responding to this in that way or whatever else it might be. 15 years I'm working on this thing, right? Some things, they take time. And uh, But one thing about this religion is that it's strong, and it gives us guidance in all kinds of issues. And if you follow it, it benefits you. But nobody can follow it for you. Okay, sometimes people go to gatherings with teachers, they go to wicked gatherings, they go to classes, and they get this feeling like, almost like I'm relieved now of actually doing it. Actually, uh, to mention from the diseases of the, of the soul, that a person cries and then they feel relief afterwards. Meaning, like, they get motivated about something, they cry about it, and then they're like, okay, I'm good now. No, you're not good now. Like, just because you cried about it doesn't mean there's nothing else to do. There's still things to do, right? Like, there's still work to be done. So, we have to do these things. What the Prophet ﷺ is saying here is that the person who takes a path seeking knowledge, their path to paradise is made easy for them. It's still a path, okay? You still have to walk on the path. You still have to go on the journey. You still, and if it's, it's still going to take some work. Right? Even if the path is an easy path, it still takes some walking. There's still going to be days that are really hot. There's going to be obstacles along the way, but we have to take it. One of the things that's said here is that the path can be tangible, it can be intangible. So the traveling a path seeking knowledge can be understood as walking to the gatherings of knowledge, meaning someone actually intends they want to learn. And so because they intend they want to learn, that learning is made easy for them. Like actually going to that thing. And <clears throat> I believe actually that a lot of things that people like us do are not because of anything that has to do with us, but they're because of the intentions of a lot of the people who come. So like I believe, for example, that there are people in this room who really wanted to learn. They really wanted to understand their religion. They really wanted to learn. And because of them, we're sitting here. Not because, like, I'm special or something like that, you know. But it was facilitated because of them. Because of them, it was made easy. So now they get to learn, mashallah. And we all get to benefit from their good intention. It's a really nice thing, alhamdulillah. So that's one possibility. The other possibility is kind of like the intangible side of it. So someone wants to learn, and 
so they remember, their memory becomes stronger, or they understand things more quickly because of the blessing of their intention. The Prophet ﷺ's statement, Allah will make easy for him or her a path leading to paradise, conveys many meanings. Among them is that Allah assists the student of sacred knowledge in his or her quest, placing him on its path and facilitating his success. In these ways, the path of knowledge leads to paradise. This facilitation is expressed in the statement of Allah the Exalted. We have made the Qur'an easy to memorize. Is there anyone who will then be reminded? 54.17 There's something really important about this, and I've kind of been hinting upon it, is that when you study, we study so that we understand our religion. We don't study so that we can become copies of our teachers. Okay? The intention in this is not so that I can sit here and teach and you become me. That is not the intention at all. The intention is, I try to learn something from this religion, and some people have told me that I should teach it, so I teach it. And hopefully you learn something too, and you can figure out how that's going to affect your own path in your own relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you have to do that yourself. And that's why I focus, I try to focus a lot on questions of methodology, and questions of like the perspective, right? Because I don't want you to copy me. I want you to have an understanding of how this thing works. So that you can take that and you can go to other teachers and you can benefit from them and you can go to other places and you can benefit from them. And eventually it makes it so the person is standing on their own two feet in their interaction with the religion, right? Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that for now. But this is yours. Like the funny thing about it is, it's our religion, it's not our religion. It's not our religion in the sense that I don't get to decide whatever it is for myself, right? Like the Prophet has told us what it is. Our job is to understand what it is. But it's mine in the sense that I belong to this religion and I want to own my relationship with my religion and with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I don't want to be dependent forever. That's why learning is important. When you learn, you're not... You, you move slowly from in levels of dependency. You always have... Some, I, up to today, am dependent. I don't like make up my own stuff. I'm dependent on the imams. I'm dependent on the history. I'm dependent on more senior scholars. Yeah, it's been... I guess you can say 17 years. But like, it's not very long. And many of the times we have to take jobs so that we can survive and stuff like that. It's not like we're studying all the time. So like, everyone depends on someone. But that level of dependency going to shift over time, right? The Prophet ﷺ's statement can convey those different means. Regarding this verse, some commentators say, is there anyone sincere in their quest for knowledge that they might be aided in its attainment? Okay? Aided in its attainment. Second side of this aid is that there's an aid in actually doing it. So many paths lead to Allah. Among them is Allah is making it easy for the student of sacred knowledge to act on its dictates. If he learns it solely for the sake of Allah. Oh, that's the point that I was going to make. Thus Allah will make it the cause of their guidance, will lead him with it, and cause him or her to act on it. These are all paths that lead to paradise. Okay. So here's one of the points. We don't learn to affirm what we already believe. What do I mean by that? I mean, obviously in the community we have different perspectives, right? <laughs> Like you have this group, and you have that group, you have this perspective, you have that perspective, you have this approach, you have this, there's different ideas. We don't study so that we can confirm what we think we already know. Okay? We study so that we can understand the religion. 
And I say this because we saw this when we were overseas. You see different students. Some students, they have their mind already made up, right? I'm following approach X. I belong to this group, I belong to that group, I'm part of this, whatever. They affiliate themselves with whatever it might be, and this is the approach that I'm on. And they spend their seven years of studying just to confirm the opinions that they already hold. Which is a total waste of time, actually. And it's not the right approach. The right approach is, I want to study so that I can understand. And I'm probably going to change my opinions on some things. Right? Like, I might look at something and be like, wait a second. I understood this one way, but it looks like it's actually something else. And I want to spend some more time studying it. I want to spend some t more time reflecting upon it. I want to understand, like, how do these things fit, right? So part of that is having sincerity. This idea of sincerity. I'm studying so that I can know Allah. I'm studying so that I can know the religion of Allah. Not so that I can be, like, in group X and gangbang for my group. That's not the way that this thing works. Right? That's, that's a totally wrong approach. May Allah guide us. And you see it all the time. And if you feel like people are doing that, I'm not saying don't benefit from them, but like, take things with a grain of salt. Like they, you know. Uh. Furthermore, any student who seeks knowledge for the sake of sincere implementation, Allah will make easy for them the ability to gain more. It is said, whoever acts on what he knows, Allah will bequeath unto him knowledge of that which he does not know. Uh, this is now an interesting give you a little side point and you're kind of dependent on the translator here and how knowledgeable the translator is but uh, it is said so many times you might hear this statement the person who acts on what they know Allah will give them knowledge that they don't know you hear this statement many times attributed to the Prophet so you hear people will say there's a hadith the Prophet says the one who acts on what they know Allah will give them knowledge that they don't know Ibn Rajab is a little bit more strict in his hadith narrations and so he doesn't attribute this to the Prophet And the way that he says it is in this passive form. Right? He says, it is said. In Arabic, that's qila, which is different than qal. So it's not an active form, it's a passive form. The passive form in these kind of texts is called sighat al-da'af. It's like a, it's a, it's, it's a form that indicates that there's some sort of weakness in the narration. So, like these are things you, you have to pay attention to them. Again, you're dependent on the translator. Alhamdulillah, translations have improved. But of course, Imam Zaid, he, he catches that because he's himself, at this point, he was a student of knowledge. But any beginning student of knowledge knows that. So it is said. It is said means this thing is said. It's sometimes attributed different places. We don't really know the authenticity of that attribution. But it's something also, it kind of indicates that he's using it, that there's truth in it. So we're not going to affirm it. We're not going to affirm it to the Prophet them. But I'm going to mention it because there's truth in it, right? So all of these things are in the expression. It is said, whoever acts on what he knows, Allah will bequeath unto him knowledge of that which he does not know. It is also said, the reward of good is the good it initiates. This meaning is indicated by Allah's statement, and this is why He's saying it. So He's going to mention it, even though it's weak, because it affirms something that Allah said. So we know that the meaning is sound. Allah increases in guidance those who pursue the path of guidance. And similarly, as for those who accept to be guided, Allah increases them in guidance and bestows upon them piety. Whoever searches for knowledge desiring to be rightly guided, Allah increases them in guidance and beneficial knowledge. This type of knowledge obligates righteous deeds. These are all paths that lead to paradise. An individual path is Allah making it, an additional path is Allah making it easy. 
For the student of sacred knowledge to benefit from that knowledge in the hereafter, to cross the sirat, the traverse, and to deal with the overwhelming horrors and imposing obstacles which precede it. The sirat is that bridge between uh, the questioning and paradise under which hellfire is, right? The reason I'm mentioning it is because certain things are true. We believe this is true and it comes from prophetic guidance, right? So you'll find it in very interesting places. So people, people were sent as prophets to their people even if they didn't have scripture. Which we believe that every people was sent prophets, right? They would have told them about this. So you shouldn't be surprised if you read like some random literature or you read some story from some people in some place and they seem to have some idea of the sirat, of the traverse. Like you shouldn't be surprised when you watch Lord of the Rings and you see Gandalf on the sirat. Right? Like he's actually on the sirat in the story. And it shouldn't be surprising because there's a universality to these things. The prophets are all bringing them. So people, will, you, so you see them in different places. Does anyone have any questions or anything you would like to mention or ask about or comment upon or reflections or anything like that? Yes. Uh, I have a question on uh, the saying of Hassan al-Basri when he says, uh, like the Prophet sees us going to and fro. Like, uh, is that literal? I just want to know more about that. Yeah, I had a feeling someone might ask that. <laughs> That's why I didn't comment on it. <laughs> I was like, if we could skip this one, we're just going to keep going. That was an interesting statement, huh? Let me find it again. I'll read it to you again for anyone who missed it. There's something we have to understand. It's a very important principle. Who understands their religion better? Us or Hassan al-Basri? Hassan al-Basri. We, we have to agree upon this as a foundation. Can he make mistakes? Of course he can make mistakes. He's not the Prophet, but we have to understand, who knows better, he knows better. Okay, it's an important principle. Uh, so what did he say? He said, <clears throat> one who hasn't seen Muhammad should know that the Prophet has seen him moving to and fro. Uh, so the question is, what does that mean, right? Uh, Allahu Alam Obviously we don't like If we had Ibn Rajab's commentary We could feel more confident about it You're stuck with Jamal Diwan's impressions <laughs> um, What comes to mind for me In reading that Are two possibilities Number one Is the possibility that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Was shown his ummah and if I recall correctly, I think there's different narrations that mention that, at least in generality, if not in specific. That the Prophet ﷺ was shown his ummah and he was happy about its size and stuff like that. Maybe there's something of that in it. The other possibility is uh, an issue that the narrations on it aren't so strong, but the scholars talk about it a lot is the idea of the Prophet ﷺ actually knowing the members of his ummah. And the idea that when we say, uh, there's a number of narrations that indicate this. So, for example, the narrations that talk about how when we say ﷺ, that that salah on the Prophet ﷺ is taken by the angel to the Prophet and delivered to him. 
And some narrations actually say that it's delivered to him by name. So it's said to him, you know, Rasulullah, so and so, the son of so and so, or so and so, the daughter of so and so, says salah on you. It says salam to you, Ya Rasulullah. That's why these songs have a Ya Rasul Salam Alaik and all this stuff. It's not just like some cute thing that sells records. There's a reason why the song has the chorus, you know. Uh, so the. And then those narrations also say that when the Prophet them says, hears that, he returns the salam. So he'll say, you know, so and so, the son or daughter of so and so, alaykum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So in that sense, the Prophet has some understanding of the different members of his ummah. The other possibility is another hadith that's, again, it's uh, disputed, but the scholars like to talk about it a lot. Is the hadith where the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam is reported to have said that the deeds of his ummah are shown to him, and when he sees good, he praises Allah, and when he sees bad, he asks forgiveness for the person. So it's it's a it's not a strong narration, but again, uh, hadith science is actually more complicated than it's sometimes made out to be. Um, so in that sense, there's a possibility too. Like in, in that case The Prophet would know about the deeds Of the different people in his community So he would kind of know about what's going on with them Those are the two things that come to mind for me I don't know that we can say for sure For sure uh, But that's what comes to mind for me Yes Shania. That's a good question. So I think it's important for me, there's some preliminary comments that I should make before I share any thoughts on this. Number one comment, and I don't say this to be, I believe that this is true, okay, is that a lot of people who talk about our tradition and our religion have actually a much shallower relationship with it than we might think. Even people who we understand them to be like, you know, traditional scholars and stuff like that. Um, the reality is that the world that we live in has led many people to spend, and I'm talking about now like religious scholars, uh, extensive amounts of time reading Western literature. And so they might say things like, for example, there's things that get said about, <coughs> um, you know, Islamic history was like doing well and everything was great. And then there was this period of stagnation where everything just like became stagnant. And then it stayed that way until colonialism. And now we're in a reform period. This is an extremely reductionist re approach to understanding it. Like, and, and why I'm saying this is because the reality is to really understand this tradition is very difficult and we don't really have the institutions that allow it 
um, especially in the West. So what I mean by that is like, say someone, a theoretical person, is 22 years old, and they decide they want to study the religion, and they don't know Arabic. So they have to spend a year and a half studying Arabic. Now they're like almost 24. Then they have to go to a high school. Then they have to go to a college. Then they finish, and they're basically a beginner. But they have to work. And when they have to work, they go in their community, and they deal with counseling, and they deal with problems, and they deal with drama, and they deal with all these other things. They're not studying. But now they're a scholar. They're not really a scholar. You know I mean? Like they haven't really sat and read like in order to give a serious answer to this question, someone would have to sit and read the main scholars of each generation for maybe like 600 years. You see what I'm saying? Like if you really want to understand, right? So, so what I'm trying to get at is that there's a lot of generalizations that are made. So someone might read like one book from Ghazali, not all 10, <laughs> but they read like one. And then they skip 500 years and they read one other book and they're going to make a generalization over 500 years. So this is the first preliminary comment. There's two comments actually in it. Is that many people read the Western tradition more than they read the actual Turaf. And the second one is that you'd have to do a lot in order to get to that conclusion. Now, that being said, uh, I believe in my limited, uh, and this, needs, this issue needs a little bit of unpacking. I don't know if I can answer it very quickly, but the, the hardline taqlid approach, so taqlid is, is imitation, right? Which is like, people in the past said this, we say that, that's it. Generally speaking, my understanding is that the hardline taqlid approach is a misunderstanding of the tradition. However, the super opera, and super, so on one side you have taqlid, which is imitation, on the other side you have ijtihad, which is like, you come up with new positions, right? The hardline ijtihad approach is also a misreading of the tradition. That's what I believe. Uh, not, I, like, based on people that we've studied with and stuff. What we find is that there are issues where we will imitate or we'll just rely upon what came before. Okay? This is more in fiqh than it is in beliefs. The beliefs were pretty much like, it's already done. What's not done is like, how do you respond to different ideas and stuff. But in terms of what we actually believe, it's done. But in terms of fiqh, there's issues that can come up. Like, how do I pray on a plane? It's a new issue in some ways. Although, how do I pray on a boat is an old issue. And it's all over the books, right? So, so my point is like, usually when we're dealing with a new issue, uh, the actual approach of the Turath is, I study my madhab, for example. My madhab gives me tools for dealing with issues. My madhab will likely answer most of the things that I need to deal with. And then there might be issues where things don't seem to fit right. You know? Maybe it doesn't work for my context. Maybe it doesn't work for the reality. Maybe it just makes things harder than it feels like it should be. So it's a lot of different indicators. But I might find that there's some issues like, okay, this doesn't seem to fit right. In that case, then, I will use the methodologies that are there to come to a new conclusion. But I'll come to a new conclusion. And many of the great scholars in these different periods, they did that on a handful of issues. Not on like every issue, but on a handful of issues that need it. They'll come up with new, new conclusions. Um, and it's important that that's done. 
Uh, and it's important that the people who are like Medhab people understand this correctly. Because if they don't, the consequence of it is a rigidity that leads to the leaving of all of the tradition. And this is where we're at right now. This is what one of my teachers always says. He'll say, for example, like, and he's very Hanafi, very Hanafi. But he'll say, like, in the Hanafi school, there's ways to deal with situations that are abnormally difficult. So I might find, like, uh, for example, in the Hanafi school, you don't combine between prayers when you're traveling. You don't combine between Dhuhr and Asr, you don't combine between Maghrib and Isha. It's not allowed in the school. His fatwa is actually, for average people, we don't give them that opinion. They give them the opinion of a Shafi'i that you can combine between prayers. Because the average person who's like, not really so committed, if you tell them they can't combine, they just end up not praying. And he believes this is a sound fatwa according to his madhab. Okay, so you see, like there's some flexibility in there that sometimes people don't realize is there. And when we don't use that, then it ends up throwing away the whole thing. So, uh, yeah, that's the short answer. I hope, I tried to make it as short as possible, but kind of like as sensible as possible. So I hope it helped a little bit. Do you have any follow-up to that? Yeah. So the really short answer to that is that we stand on our tradition and we deal with reality. And, and every generation of scholars did that. very difficult to do Islamic studies without logic. Yeah, so like these institutions like this Azhar and these institutions, do they still like teach like in the way that they used to? Yeah. Well, yes and no. The true answer is yes and no. Um, no in the sense that things are not what they used to be. <coughs> And there's many, many reasons for that, right? But for example, like when I'm in the College of Sharia in Al-Azhar, and anyone who, lives, who is familiar with the Middle East, they know this. Who goes to the College of Sharia? Anyone? Yeah. I mean, at least for us, like South Asians, they usually say like the, the dumb child so that he has some respect. Right. So like the people who do so poorly in school that they can't go to any other college they go to sharia so what that means is when you're sitting in your class in sharia the teacher can only say so much because most of the class can't follow it and actually like the amount of people like the difference between our freshman year and our senior year is really profound like the freshman year is a huge classroom with a bunch of people the senior year is like not very many people left you know and that's not actually going into a whole lot of depth that's not doing actually what you really should be doing, okay? However, that being said, I, the, the, curric, the actual like on paper curriculum of somewhere like an Azhar, which I can speak to, because that's where I went, I can't really speak to a lot of other places, is really strong. I still believe that it's really strong. Uh, the question is like, how well does the average graduate know that curriculum? Which is true for a lot of places, by the way. It's true for like, I've seen this with a lot of Dutch and Islami curriculums. I think that there's good in the curriculum. And there's people who graduate and they're really strong. And there's people who graduate and they're really weak. 
They just listen to the class, they pass an exam, but they don't really understand, you know? So this is where the issue lies. Uh, the old methodology was that you know the courses you have to master. For example, like the old methodology in Azhar was that there's only one degree. There's no bachelor's, there's no master's, there's no PhD, there's no different colleges and specializations. There's only one degree. You come into Al-Azhar, you master every single subject there is to master in Islamic studies, and you sit for an exam, and you either pass it or you don't. That's it. There's only one. So like if someone was an Azhari, you knew like they were an Azhari. And that exam was not a written exam. It's like you, you apply for it and you sit in front of a panel of scholars and they'll grill you for hours and hours and hours on every single issue, just wherever they want to go. So they'll like start a verse from the Quran, you have to finish it. And then they'll tell you like, okay, now read it in the other Qira'ah. And then they'll be like, okay, well, in the tafsir of Baydawi, what does he say about this verse? Okay, what does Razi say? Why do they differ? You know? Okay, there's a, there's a hadith that's mentioned. What's the difference in the hadith? What, what did this say about the hadith? What does that say about the hadith? What does that implicate about their different methodologies? And they do that for hours, right? So that they can make sure you really understood everything. That's the old method. You don't have that anymore. Not as like, you're not going to get a degree like that. So why did I say yes and no? The no is clear. The yes is less clear. The yes of it is that traditional Islamic studies wasn't a university in, in like a modern sense. It was, there's people of knowledge, you take your knowledge from them over the course of decades, and eventually they say that you're qualified. That still exists. In, in Al-Azhar, that's still, to today, there's the Al-Azhar that's the university, and there's the Al-Azhar that's just there, like outside the university amongst the people of knowledge, in people's houses, in masajid, and other places. And all of the scholars who aren't in prison are still teaching like in all of these different places, right? They're still teaching in the masajid, they're still, like I said, in the Madhyatha, it's right across from Al-Azhar. There's like three or four classes every single day there, free for the public, anyone can go. And they're all from senior scholars. So if a person sticks to that over an extended period of time, you will still find like, I can say that I found in, a, in, a, in Al-Azhar a, a cadre of senior students who are really strong, who like, they really know their stuff. The problem in Egypt is politics. So oftentimes, like, in order to survive, in order to live, in order to do that, you end up kind of caught up somehow in some sort of political situation. So that's, that's a big problem there, you know? But you still find people that are really, really strong. And they're really amazing. And a lot of times, nobody even knows they exist. Um, like we had one teacher who passed away, uh, who used to teach grammar. Took a class in grammar from him. He was blind. And the school that we were taking this class in is in the middle of the graveyard. People are familiar with Cairo, you know, like, there's a good portion of the city that's a graveyard. People live in it. And they're like, Basically, you have rooms like this, but they don't have any roof. People live in those spaces. And there's roads and stuff. There's markets. It's all in the graves. And the school is in the middle of the graves. And so you like, sit there and you wait, and you just see this like blind man with really tattered clothes and stuff just come walking like out of nowhere, come into this school, and you sit down and teach. And obviously, he's blind. So like we were studying the um, commentary of... 
Ibn Aqil on Al-Fiyat ibn Malik with him, which is like a, a poem in grammar and a commentary. So he would just sit down and he would be like, Yalla awlad, imla. He'd be like, all right, uh, you guys are ready? We're like, yeah. And he's like, all right, write down the following. And he, he memorized the whole book. You know? So he'd tell us, like, here's the commentary, you write it down. And then we'd write it down and then he'd comment on it. And then he'd go to the next section. All the books are memorized. And he passed away, probably nobody even know he was there. Allah you know, Sheikh Ibrahim. So there's people like that, especially in the older generation, because the system in Al-Azhar has changed relatively recently. So some of the people were in like their 70s, their 80s, they actually went through the old system. And they're really strong. You know? There's still a lot of, alhamdulillah, like I said in the beginning, the, the ummah of the Prophet them, Allah will never leave it. There will always be people in the ummah of the Prophet them who carry this religion. And so... In every major place of learning, even in places where people are like, oh, it's not traditional, places like Medina and stuff like that, you'll still find great scholars in Medina. Every major place of, like any major long-standing place of Muslim civilization, you'll still find great scholars. You might not find as many, you might not find it like as much, but you'll still find them. Um, and logic, you know, like things, things like this, you'll cover them, people will cover them, you'll still cover them. Even though they don't like logic, they still study logic. <laughs> Yeah, you have to. You can't understand aqidah. You can't understand nahu even. You can't even understand Arabic grammar without logic. So, anyways, these are things I'm very passionate about. So I kind of end up saying too much. Forgive me. Anyone else have any? Yeah. So backing up to your previous answer when you were talking about Hanafi, Pinyan traveling. So how how can you how can an average sort of person know where to draw the line between actually trying to follow a mishap? sort of human nature part of like cherry picking the easiest from each one of them. Yeah. Or is there no reason to not do that? Yeah, big question. Um, do you guys need me to repeat it back people? How does a regular, we're talking about the Hanafi madhab and what's opinion not, how does a regular average person like basically follow either a madhab or how do they not cherry pick between different opinions? Or is that even an issue in the first place? Um, <laughs> so there's a little bit of a complication in this issue. The complication is that historically, oftentimes they would say that the madhab of the average person is the madhab of whoever they ask their question to. So the basic responsibility of an average person is find someone you trust you trust their knowledge, you trust their taqwa, and you ask your question to them. And whatever they tell you, you go with it. The complication on that is that, as I mentioned before, historically, the people you ask your question to had a madhab. <laughs> so if, you're, if, if you know that you grew up Hanafi, for example, or you studied Hanafi and you're trying to follow it, then you go to ask a Hanafi sheikh, you know where you're getting your answer from. Uh, oftentimes when we go and ask people now we're getting our answers from all over the place so there's a little bit of a complication in it but that being said I personally think that again there's a middle ground to this whole thing I think that some people are very much like who cares about the medhebs in the first place that's one extreme the other extreme is you have to follow your medheb on every single thing which is totally impractical actually and is not going to happen outside of tahara and salah anyways uh, most people are not going to do that outside of prayer and purification anyways. Um, 
So, that being said, I think that it's good for your average person to learn how to purify themselves and to learn how to pray, at least, according to a madhab. And they should follow that in their daily life. And if they have some sort of situation that feels exceedingly difficult, or they don't know how to navigate it, then they can ask on that particular issue. And maybe there's like some sort of exception. But that's not really cherry picking. A cherry picking would be like, I'm going to choose the easiest thing on every single issue. You're not doing that. You're just saying like, I don't know, like I want to follow Medhab X, but they don't wipe on socks. And it's really hard for me to live without wiping on socks. I just kind of opened up a huge door probably. But um, <laughs> uh, but like, so on this issue, I'm going to take that school, for example. That's not necessarily like cherry picking type thing. So I think that for the average person, and, and again, once you get outside of purification and prayer, like if you go to Hajj, you're probably going to learn generally how to do Hajj on, a, on your madhab, but you're going to probably take exceptions just because that's the way Hajj is now. Um, zakat, there's going to be modern issues probably going to come in. They might not be like so madhab specific. And then that's still in worship. You're still in, like outside of worship is a whole different world. Economics and, you know, all of these issues. So most people are not. I think a little bit, I think it becomes like a little bit overly polemical at times. Like if I take a hard method position, I'm on this team. And if I don't take a hard method position, I'm on this team. And I want to be on that team. So like I'm just going to. Yeah, but okay, like that's why I said knowledge is more important to me than all of these politics. Like, okay, so what's actually happening? What's actually happening is it doesn't always play out the way that we think it's playing out, you know. Uh, that's, again, a long answer. I think it's good for purification and prayer. Find a madhab, follow it. Learn how to pay zakat. It's probably not going to be madhab based. And that's it. Basically, after that, it's going to be individual issues. For individual issues, you go to someone you trust. And if you don't know who to trust, a good default is to go to fit councils, even though there's a lot of debate on these things. But generally, it's better to go to a group of people than an individual. But you might find interesting things still. You know. uh, but that's, you know, slowly but surely, things will fall into place, inshallah. Yes? Sorry, let me interrupt you for a second. General rule, you can leave whenever you want. Nobody's going to get upset. If you need to go, if you're tired of hearing this, if you're like, all right, that's enough madhab stuff for me today. I need to go. Get some food, get some fool, get some eggs, go. It's okay, it's fine, it's no problem. You want to take a nap, take a nap. By the way, I have this general rule. And any time that I'm teaching, if you need to take a nap, just take a nap. It doesn't bother me at all. If you need to sleep, sleep. It's okay. It's not, it's fine. Actually, sleep, they say that, like, there's sometimes spiritual development that happens in sleep. <laughs> so, you know, just go to sleep. It's okay. So, like, in regards to, like, cherry picking, for example, what's wrong if someone does choose to pick, like, the easiest thing for a learner with every single opinion So, in order to really get at this, we have to kind of pick it apart a little bit, okay? So, for example, if we're going to say what's the easiest. <coughs> so, 
So let's start at like Wu. Okay. So what's the minimum in Wu? To wash your face. So we'll, we'll skip nose and mouth because uh, some schools don't require nose and mouth, they only require face. Okay. Then when we get to arms, we'll, we'll do our hands and our arms. There's opinions, you really shouldn't follow them, that the elbow doesn't have to be included. It's kind of like a shad opinion, but it's there if you really want to go down that route. Um, so we just skip our elbows too. And then we get to our wiping our head, and we're like, okay. The easiest opinion on wiping the head is that you have to wipe a portion of one hair. Okay. Hanafi school is one-fourth of your head. Malikis and Hanbalis, you have to wipe your entire head. Shafi'is, you get to do just a little bit. So you go with the Shafi'is. You get to your feet, and you're like, I don't really feel like taking my socks off. I made wudu with my socks off. I still have wudu. They're thick. They meet the conditions that are specified in the four madhabs. Actually, we can go outside. Let's say I want to go with Ibn Taymiyyah. You go with Ibn Taymiyyah. Not, not like, now you're getting to some, you're starting to get to like really sketchy territory. Uh, and then you're like, all right, fine, alhamdulillah, I made my wudu. What breaks my wudu? Okay, touching the opposite gender. I'm going to go with the opinion it doesn't break my wudu. All right, it doesn't break your wudu. Uh, bleeding. I'm going to go with the opinion that bleeding doesn't break your wudu instead of breaks your wudu. There's a difference of opinion. So we take the easier one. Bleeding doesn't break your wudu. Uh, <laughs> you keep going through like every issue, right? So now you have something, like you literally have something that nobody said. Right? This is the issue. Usually when they talk about this in the books of fiqh, is like, are you coming up with something that nobody would have allowed? So they looked at the Qur'an and the Sunnah, and they applied, because you have to have some, in order to have integrity with the Qur'an and the Sunnah, there has to be a method. Right? So if I'm going to just... But if I apply that method, this is why some people ask, like, which school is harder and easier? Oh, the Hanafi school is so hard. No, it's not. You've just been dealing with a lot of South Asians. So you think it's like harder than the other schools. It's not actually. So like this school is harder than that one and so on and so forth. No school is actually harder than another school. Why? Because they have a methodology. They're not worried about harder or easier. They have a methodology. They apply it. They come to a conclusion. Right? You look in worship and you're like, whatever, it's still worship. But now you're going to have issues. There are issues where this has consequence. So for example, someone wants to get married. Okay? So they're like, I'm going to take the opinion that the woman doesn't need the approval of her wedding. Okay, fine. And then, uh, and the other madhab, I'm going to take the opinion that you don't need witnesses at the time of the contract. And then I'm going to take also this opinion on some random opinion on mahr, on the gift that the husband gives the wife. So now what can happen is like literally the kids are in high school and they're on their lunch break and one kid goes up to the next, the, the guy goes up to the girl and he says, will you marry me? And she says, yes, and now they're married. They just go have, they can go do whatever they want. Okay, this is a position that no one would have taken. But you took the easy position on two or three issues and you put it together. So, what is the issue really? You could take, again, if you want to be more lenient, there are scholars who said you can take easy positions. As long as you're taking the easier position doesn't result in a consequence that nobody would have allowed. If it results in a consequence that you're like, okay, this still makes some sense. And so say, for example, you want to do the marriage thing. And Abu Hanifa's position on the wali that the, the woman can do the contract herself is easier than the other madhabs. 
So I want to take Abu Hanifa's opinion. Okay, fine. You can take Abu Hanifa's opinion. Just take his actual opinion, which is like the woman can do it herself, but if certain conditions aren't met, then her father still has the right to go to the judge and ask the judge to annul the marriage. That's his actual position. Not just like I can do whatever I want type thing, right? So this is the actual issue, I think. And sometimes, actually, it's, it's necessary to take positions that are easier. And that can be a uh, consideration. Like in the Hanafi school, it is one of the considerations for leaving the standard position of the madhab. That there could be an issue where like, it's, it becomes too difficult in a particular context and you need to give an answer that's easier. And so you, you do choose an answer that's easier. You can do that. But to do it on like every issue, then you start to get something. By the way, it also applies to the other side. You shouldn't just take the hard opinion on every issue. Because now you're coming up with something that doesn't actually properly reflect the spirit of Islam. Now, it's everything is easy or everything is hard. That's not Islam. Some things are going to be hard sometimes. Some things are going to be easy sometimes. So there's a balancing in that. Right? So, but on individual things, you can do it. And I know this is different. I, <clears throat> you know, Sheikh Qaradawi has like a very, his methodology and fatwa is very like you take the easy opinion. Uh, but I think people even take it to a consequence that he wouldn't take it to sometimes. But anyways, details. You know. Anyone else have anything? I'm surprised nobody left when I said you can leave anytime you want. <laughs> Other people actually care about these things. I'm really surprised. But it's like my world. Yeah. Both really good questions, mashallah. So the qadi, qadi is a judge, okay? Judge is different than a mufti. Mufti gives you an opinion, but it's not binding. The judge gives you an opinion, but it's binding, right? Like if the judge gives you the opinion, you don't get to not do it. That's basically what it means to go to a judge, right? That's, you need it for society. You can't have a society with People aren't always able to solve their disputes themselves. Sometimes they need a judge to solve the dispute, essentially what they're doing. They yaqdi. Qadi yaqdi nas. They solve the dispute. So, um, how would we do that in the West? So, the general rule is that a Muslim is required to follow the Sharia insofar as they can. Certain things in the Sharia have certain requirements that maybe we cannot meet if we're not in that system. But that doesn't mean that we can't... That doesn't mean there's no solutions. So, there's a couple different ways that this could play out on some things. Some things we're not going to get them. So like, capital punishment, penal code, stuff like that. We're not going to be able to have our own qadi in those things. But in matters of family law, in matters of divorce, in matters of economics, there's a lot of actually uh, leeway in the legal system that we live in. Where like, the person for example could say, 
that we're going to get married and we're getting married according to X and we're getting divorced if we get divorced according to Y. And so they've agreed now to this arbitration to this person. So this person now is playing the role of the Qadi in the divorce issue. Um, but essentially what it is is that we have to have people who can answer these questions. That's essentially what it comes down to. And sometimes we can do it by... Usually we can do it through arbitration and contracts and stuff. Most things are contractual anyways. So if we set up contracts in a certain way, then that contract can be enforced in a certain way, which would allow someone in the position of a Qadi to do that. The other difficulty with this is that the Qadi is necessarily appointed by the government because they have that enforceability, right? That's why we have to use these contracts and things. Obviously, we don't have like an Islamic government in America that's going to appoint the Qadi. Uh, what do they say in this case? They say that uh, there's two basic solutions in the modern fatwas that are based in the past, which is that uh, one of them is that the imam of the major Islamic center takes the position of the Qadi in the absence of the Qadi. So I'll give you a very practical example. This might ruffle some feathers. Uh, a woman and a man want to get married. And the man meets the Sharia basics of being suitable for this woman. Okay? But the father of the woman is rejecting the marriage for no legitimate reason. Maybe it's like skin color. Maybe it's, I don't know, he doesn't make quite enough money. Like he only makes 100,000 a year and we really need 120 or like whatever the situation, some random reason, right? This woman now, under normal Islamic system, she can go to the Qadi, the Qadi can look at the situation and the Qadi can overrule her wali and perform the marriage or assign a new wali who will perform the marriage. In the absence of the Qadi, this woman is basically out of luck. Right? And we have a problem. So you have a right that's dependent upon a system, but the system isn't there. So I've had this situation before, where like, I'm the imam of the masjid, a major masjid. I might look at a situation and feel, okay, I'm justified in performing the marriage of this woman, even though her father, for example, disagrees. Which is a hard position to take, but someone has to take it. Like, if it's her right in the sharia, someone has to take the position, right? But if that's not my job, I can't do that. So like, let's say, for example, that I'm no longer the imam of the masjid. I'm the teacher in the Islamic school. I can't be the one to make that call now. Because I don't, I don't play the role of the qati. So the imam of the masjid can do that. Or the other position, Mufti Taqi Osmani's position on this, is that there should be councils of three scholars who they play the role of the qati. This is most relevant in issues of marriage and divorce in America, which are, there's very, a lot of issues that happen. Because, say, again, say for example, the woman gets married to a man, and they don't do a legal marriage. It's just Islamic marriage. They have no paperwork, they have nothing, right? And the guy disappears. How does she get divorced? It's a problem, right? Like in an Islamic system, she could go to a judge, and the judge could issue the divorce. There's no judge to go to, what does she do? She's stuck. Right? So if you don't have some body to do these things, you're in a very problematic situation. But this is how these are some ways that we could deal with the Qadi question. The hadith question 
So I should preface it by saying that most of my Islamic studies experiences in the realm of fiqh and law, it's not in hadith. Like I'm not a hadith specialist, okay? But hadith and how it's used is a major issue in the law. Um, so how can I say this when we look at hadith generally hadith includes the actions and the statements and a number of other things of the Prophet okay? so not only are his statements normative his actions are normative I'm saying this because when it comes to especially the senior sahaba their actions at least in some schools are normative or maybe informative at some level so say we have a narration about how a vessel should be washed when a dog licks it and it's narrated by I don't remember exactly who the narrator is but let's say it's like Abu Huraira but then we also know that Abu Huraira didn't do that when a dog licked his vessel he didn't wash it seven times, he washed it three times. So now he's the narrator of the hadith, and the hadith is authentic. But when he went to do this thing, he didn't do it that way. Right? So like, how do we understand that? Right? These are, these are some, but we know that his behavior is normative at some level. Like Ibn Omar's behavior is normative at some level. If he did something, we have a good reason to believe that he did it for a reason. If Omar did it, if Abu Bakr did it, so on and so forth. Okay? All of this is leading up to this point. Abu Hanifa dies, for example, in 150 after Hijrah. The works of like Bukhari, Muslim, Tirmidhi, Abu Dawood, all of these things come in the 200s-ish. So you're talking like 100 years after Abu Hanifa. Abu Hanifa's teachers were Sahaba or very senior followers. So like, it's very possible that Abu Hanifa is told something and he hears it from a number of people who saw it from the companions of the Prophet and he doesn't actually give us like a hadith on it a particular like authentic hadith on it but that practice is still established and reliable at some level because like, they wouldn't have done it So now what I'm getting at with this is that there's a little bit of complication in here so by the time you get to Abu Dawood, Abu Dawood might have a hadith that by the standards of hadith scholarship is not considered authentic. But it agrees with maybe like what Sayyidina Ali did. Because we know all those things, like all the actions of the Sahaba, all of these people are narrated too. So Abu Dawood can then look and he'd be like, okay, I have this hadith, it's authentic. And it agrees with what Omar did. And I have this hadith, and it's not considered authentic. And it agrees with what Ali did. Okay? And this one is actually the opinion of Imam Ahmed, in terms of what we should do. And this one is the opinion of Abu Hanifa, in terms of what we should do. So what Abu Dawood will do then, is he'll just include both of them. And what he's doing in that is he's not only preserving the narration of the hadith, but he's preserving the record of practice. You see what I'm saying? 
So it's not only about like this is the strong narration, but it's about there were people who we trust in religion who acted on this, and so we want to look at that. Or sometimes they might put a weak hadith if there's a topic that they don't have a strong hadith in. Maybe it's like a topic. I don't. I can't think of an issue right now, but uh, there might be a, a particular issue, and there's no strong narration in it. There's only a weak narration, so they include the weak narration because we're still going to pay attention to that now. So we don't have. A, we don't. That's the best we have, right? According to, but then it, sometimes it differs on methodology and stuff. But that's generally like why they would keep that. Is there? Because what we decide to do, and this is the issue that gets a lot more complicated, is like, what we decide to do is not only based on hadith. It's based on the Qur'an, it's based on hadith, it's based on the actions of the Sahaba, it's based on other hadith that might be semi-related or distantly related, so on and so forth. But maybe there's five hadith that are not directly related, but they give us a general principle that we can believe in very strongly. And we have a hadith here that's even it might be strong, but it's not what it gives us is not as strong as that principle that we took from these five. So then the scholar will look and he'll say, I'm going to take this rather than this when it comes to coming to the conclusion. So the weak hadith also have implication in that regard, because what the scholar is really trying to do is look at all of the body of evidence and indications from the Quran, from the hadith, from the practice of the early Muslims from the general guidances, from the specific guidances, and figure out what is more likely to be correct. And in that process, the weak hadith might actually be important. Does that... Yeah, it's, it's a big topic. It's a very, very interesting topic. Um, and interestingly, the madhabs differ too, and part of it is related to their timing. So like Abu Hanifa and Malik have a different approach with hadith than Shafi and Ahmed. And Shafi and Ahmed are later, and Malik and Abu Hanifa are very early. So, you know, it's like a, there's a conflict between, in a sense, a riwayah with amal, like the narration and the practice. So how do we negotiate this? Uh, and all of that is, comes into it. Yes, Adhikar. Or if you flip it, or there's a sound, solitary hadith, and a person like Mehmet would reject that because he saw a normative practice of the taboo and practicing differently in the data, so they would reject that. <coughs> right, right. Abu Hanifa will do that too. So, uh, and what that means is like hadith come to us in different ways, right? So, and they could all be authentic. So we could have an authentic hadith that's narrated from one companion to one follower to one student to the author of the book of hadith. And that could be considered an authentic narration. And we could have another hadith that's like three companions and ten of their students to a hundred of their students to the compiler of the book of hadith and it's authentic but they're not authentic in the same way right? and uh, so there's a lot of factors here Abu Hanifa for example has different and it's not because some people say it's because he didn't have as much hadith or he lived away from Medina and stuff that's not true it's because this is his methodology and how do I understand the situation so like <coughs> the example that I gave, sometimes you might have an authentic hadith, but it's in a matter that should have affected a lot of people and it's narrated only by a few people. In this case, even if it's authentic, Abu Hanifa might not take it. 
Or like in certain issues, this is, forgive me, it's matters of knowledge. There's a question in, in Tahara and purification about does touching your private parts break your wudu? And there's actually two hadith, both of them are sound by the conditions of hadith scholarship. One of them indicates that it breaks your wudu, one of them indicates it doesn't break your wudu. So Abu Hanifa's approach is, if this breaks your wudu, a lot of people should have known this and a lot of people should have narrated it. So he takes the position that it doesn't break your wudu. So this is how he balances between these narrations. So this is, you know, it's, a, it's very interesting. These methodologies are very interesting. And again, you know, one of the important things here is that we don't take a reductionist approach. The reductionist approach makes it like, no, Abu Hanifa just held this opinion because Abu Hanifa didn't know hadith. Like, it's very hard to say this in a polite way, but like, that's just a very ridiculous argument. Uh, it's, it's not based in any sort of history or fact or anything else. Um, so, no, there's a different method and there's a different approach and we should understand the approach and it's going to have consequences. And that's part of the blessing of our deen is that this is an approach and it's sound and it gives us a sound conclusion and this is an approach and it's sound and it gives us a sound conclusion and if, either, if a person does either one of them, alhamdulillah, they did something that they're fine in front of Allah and alhamdulillah that we have that, you know. So, anyways, alhamdulillah, that's probably sufficient for now. Maybe in the future... You get a lot of this stuff when you get into like uh, it, This is the thing also like Much of hadith Many hadith commentaries Many works in hadith methodology Are written by Shafi'is actually And the Shafi'is are more strict in their approach to hadith Which is fine But it doesn't <coughs> It doesn't necessarily reflect the approach of the Malikis and the Hanafis Which is good for us to understand Like for example a lot of people in the modern situation there's a tendency to reject hadith as a whole. You know, no hadith is reliable and all this kind of stuff, you know. They, they'll reject everything, unless it's like mutawatir or something. But if they understood the approach of the Hanafis, I don't think they would do that. But because they didn't even know this exists, like, this is their other option. They're just going to reject everything, which is wrong anyways. They should do some more reading and stuff. But, uh, you know, alhamdulillah, it's different approaches. Yes, anyone else? Alright. Barakallah fikum, we should close. Subhanakallah, bihamdika, shalom, na'ina, astaghfirullah, to be like, Allah forgive us and accept from us and help us to act upon what we have studied together. Allahumma ameen. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Muhammad wa alayhi wa sallam, alhamdulillah. Recording stop.